a pleasure to be here this morning preaching. Um, well, uh, this morning's text is 1 Peter 4. Josh last week finished off 1 Peter chapter 3. And while you're flipping there in your Bible, by a raise of hands, how many of you have heard of this man, Reverend Eliezer Sidhu? No hands. That's what I expected. Don't feel bad because until last month, I didn't know who he was either. In fact, I'd never heard of him until I read about him in the news, in the Christian Post. Reverend Eliezer Sidhu is a pastor in Pakistan, a Reformed pastor there. On August 16th, his church, along with 20 other Christian churches in the area, were attacked by hardline Muslims. And then a couple weeks later, on August 28th, his church was vandalized with graffiti that said, Muhammad is the, la- the last prophet of Allah, and other slanderous things like that, especially towards him as the, as the individual. Here's what happened in response to this, and this is a quote from the article. It begins with him, uh, Pastor Eliezer, talking. Three days later, after he, he had cleaned up the graffiti, when I was returni- returning home after picking up my son from school, we were stopped by some unidentified bearded men. He said, they threatened me, saying that I will delete you from this world in the same way you deleted the graffiti. End quote. So that, very, very hostile. And then, so that happened. And then last month in September, when Eliezer was returning home after uh, making some pastoral visits to church members, two bearded men stopped him. One of them pulled out a pistol and said, recite the Islamic profession of faith. And not only did Eliezer refuse, but he started reciting a profession of faith. He started reciting the Apostles' Creed, the one that we, that we read each morning. And once he started doing that, the man shot him. And by God's grace, he, he was taken to the hospital and he, he lived to, to tell um, the story But think about this for a second. This man had a gun pointed at his chest and was willing to suffer and die rather than to deny Christ. He made it clear not only to the shooter, but to everyone who has read his story, who he lives for and what he lives for. He doesn't live for man or the fear of man, but he lives for God and is willing to risk everything for his Savior. And so as we reflect on this very real modern-day example of suffering for righteousness, think about these questions. What controls your actions? Why do you do what you do? What do you live for? And we will see in our passage this morning how what what we do in our life is directly connected to what we live for. So if you live for human passions as we'll see in the text, you will look like those in the world living for the fleeting passions of the world. A bigger paycheck, a bigger house, a nicer car. But if you live for God, your life will look radically different to such a degree that you will likely suffer, as Pastor Eliezer did. As we come to 1 Peter 4, Peter continues discussing Christian conduct, and he's been talking about this for a while. And up until this point, the motive for holy living and this suffering has been so that Christians would be good witnesses to those who do not know Christ, 
In other words, Peter is calling Christians to put the power of the gospel on display for those around them by their changed lives. And looking back throughout the letter, it's hard to unsee this, that the, suf- the submission and the suffering that Christians are, ca- are called to endure has an, this outward motive. Initially, the outward motive. In chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 12, Peter writes, Keep your t- conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. See that outward motive there? They may do this. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, the motive is submitting to human institutions like governments and emperors. And it says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. So again, outward motive. The motive for wives submitting to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 1 is that so that even if some do not know, obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And again, in 1 Peter 3, 16, the motive for suffering is so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So as you see, if we do a little sur- as we just did that survey, you can see the motive of holy living and suffering up until this point has been to elicit a response from other people. Whether that response is shame or repentance or the ultimate goal, which is that they would glorify God, Christians are to uh, display to others. But in chapter 4, Peter makes a significant change in his focus. The primary motive of how we conduct ourselves is not outward as something for others to see, but the primary motive concerns the purification of believers for the purpose of living for God. And as we will see, the purpose or the why behind what Peter is calling Christians to do is that they would gl- glorify God in, our, in the time of exile by living for God in exile. If I were to summarize this entire sermon in six words, it would be, Christ suffered, therefore live for God. So d- don't leave though. That's, that's the summary, but we're going to unpack that. And so I want to ask the question again. What do you live for? Now, before Peter calls Christians to conduct themselves in a certain way, he grounds everything in this text in the gospel. He says, since therefore, in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, that's how he starts it. And by starting with Christ, he makes the gospel the forerunner of of anything we do. This is no doubt a reference to 1 Peter 3.18, where Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Tate preached on this a couple of weeks ago, in this verse, putting great emphasis on the gospel reality. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. And so remember, our Christian conduct is an outflow of the gospel, not as a means of justification or of right standing before God. Rather, our conduct is a means of glorifying and delighting in God, the God who saved us. And because of this, every point that comes up today is going to be grounded in since Christ suffered. So that's, that's the, uh, the ground for everything we do here. With that, let's look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This idea of arming yourselves is very unique in the Bible. This is the only time it's used, and it has a military sense to it. Just as soldiers are armed with weapons when preparing for war, Christians are called to arm themselves with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh. And, and there are three aspects of this arming yourselves that I want to I highlight. First, this is an active command. In other words, we are to be the actors. We are to arm ourselves. We're to take up arms in contrast to something that is a bit more passive like enduring suffering. You know, we don't, we don't persecute ourselves. We endure and we suffer through it, whereas taking up arms is active. Secondly, this is a positive command. So active, first, positive command, second, which means Peter is calling us to do something rather than to not do something. So if someone tells you, don't touch that, that's a negative command, don't do that. But if someone says, go take out the trash, that's a, that's a positive command You're to go do something. And so arm yourselves with this Christ-like mindset is a positive command in this sense. This is important to recognize because Peter is encouraging something rather than discouraging something. Arming yourselves is good. It's, it's right and it glorifies God. Third, this, this arming yourselves is plural. It's meant to be for the entire church. We are to arm ourselves. Going back to the military analogy, you don't go into battle by yourself or alone. You go into battle with an army and so when we read this command, we can't divorce it from the corporate church context. God doesn't call us to fight against the flesh alone. He equips us as a unit, as a church. So to summarize all that, when Peter says, arm yourselves, he is saying, Christians, actively take up arms against the flesh as Christians. This leads us to point number one, which is since Christ suffered, Arm yourselves with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh. Now in theology, there is a doctrine called union with Christ, which helps explain the relationship Christians have with Christ. It's not merely that Christians are saved by Christ, but the New Testament language describes Christians as being in Christ. As seen in Romans 5, we are born under condemnation in Adam, but then we are born again in sal to salvation in Christ. There's that in language, union language. So if we look back at verse 1, we see that this union with Christ that we have as Christians extends not just to our status before God, but it extends to our very actions and our very thoughts and the way that we live. That's what I mean when I say arm yourselves with this Christ-like mindset. Just as Christ submitted to the sufferings of the cross, so too Christians are who are united to him are willing to suffer in the flesh. And having this Christ-like mindset towards the flesh leads one, according to Peter, to cease from sin. We see this in the second half of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. As I stated earlier, the motive for suffering has shifted from an outward motive to a more inward motive. He isn't saying, you know, he is saying whoever is suffering in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
Now we know this ceasing isn't a complete state of sinlessness because although we are given new hearts as Christians, we still are tainted by sin. We also know Peter isn't promoting some sort of formula that is suffering equals uh, ceasing from sin. Rather, in light of the context, Peter seems to be saying that if you equip yourself with this Christ-like mindset towards the flesh, having the desire to obey God rather than men, even to the point of fleshly suffering, the inevitable result is that you're not going to be content with continuing in sin. In sin, You're not going to be content with it. And so you're going to, in a sense, cease from it. You're not going to continue in it. This is most vividly dis- displayed in Romans 6, where Paul answers the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? By no means. How can we who live, we who died to sin still live in it? So to put it simply, in this text this morning, Peter is calling you to arm yourself with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh because whoever does this will not continue in sin. But Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't just provide uh, what we should do, but he provides why we should do it. And that's, as we're going to talk about today, that's the most important part of this text. This leads to point two. Christ suffered, since Christ suffered, live the rest of your life for the will of God. And this comes from verse two. I'll read one and two together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the light, rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In verse one, Peter gives the the action or the command, the word to do. Verse two, he provides the reason, or the purpose for that command, which is more important in this text because it, it grounds the reason. You know, it's not just an arbitrary command to do this. It, he has a reason. So as to live for the rest of, the li- of your life for the will of God rather, rather than for human passions. The KJV translates it like this, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. The lusts of men are diametrically opposed to the will of God. You cannot live for the lusts of men and the will of God. The, the driving force in your life is either one or the other. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight, is his God. So I'll pose the question even again. What do you live for? Do you, do you live for the lusts of men or do you live for the will of God? And the reason I ask this again is because you can live an outwardly holy life and you can have a suffering mindset and you can even resist external sins and all the while you can be living for yourself. You can do all these things and entirely miss the point. And so we must remember that the purpose for having a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh, the purpose that, uh, for suffering in the flesh, and the purpose for ceasing from sin is so that, as verse 2 says, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So now we know what Peter is calling us to do, and we know why we are to do it. Now what does this look like in real life? I mean, how does one have a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh in real life, an actual day-to-day life? Um, and and verse three, verses 3 and 4, Peter describes how this is to be done or wh- what this kind of looks like. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. There is a well-known productivity phrase that goes like this. Show me your calendar, and I'll show you your priorities. In other words, how you spend your time is telling about what you value. If you value your health, you're going to spend time at the gym and spend time making really healthy food. And if you value learning, you're going to spend time studying. And if you value your living space, you're going to spend time keeping it tidy and doing chores. There's all sorts of things in our lives that we, that we give time to, and it shows that we value it. And it. But occasionally, we realize there are certain things in our lives that don't deserve any more time. Let's call them bad habits. Maybe you watch too much TV, or you eat too much sugar, Social media comes to mind for me. I could easily spend 30 to 45 minutes scrolling on Twitter, and 99% of the time, it's a waste of time. And so, how do we get rid of a bad habit? You You stop spending time doing it. You cut it off. You cut it out of your life. And now we understand this idea with bad habits. We, We give them up, and we cut them off, or we don't give time to them. But giving up sins doesn't come as easily to us. Nevertheless, this is what Peter expects from believers. And and this leads to point three. Since Christ suffered, give no more time to sin. Peter's phrasing is, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. And what he's saying, in other words, is, you've been doing these sins for long enough. Leave them in the past. All this sin, all it does is takes from you. Leave it alone Give it no more time. And in verse 3, Peter provides specific examples of what these pagan Gentiles do and what Christians are called to leave in the past. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The first three sins, for the most part, are more internal and private. Sensuality, passions, and drunkenness. You can, int- you can entertain whatever thoughts you want in your head. You can feel whatever burning passions you want in your inside. And, and you can drink excef- excessively to a degree, and no one will know. Right? It's, they're all kind of happening inside. And on the surface, you might look okay, but inside you're, you're corrupted. And so sensuality, passions, and drunkenness can progress into their external counterparts, if you, want, if you want to say that. Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If sensuality and passions take over a person, they won't be content with 
just entertaining thoughts in their head, they're going to want to act on those thoughts and actually do them. If drunkenness overtakes a person, they won't, they won't want to just drink alone. They're going to go seek out other people to drink with. And all of these sins lead to lawless idolatry, which Romans 1 depicts as worshiping created things rather than the creator. Now, if you've ever struggled with a certain sin or a particular set of sins, you know the damage and corruption that takes place. If we entertain it, it can quickly compound. There's one old dead guy who put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Peter knows this as well, which is why he expects believers to give no more time to sin. Arm yourselves with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh. Don't continue in sin. Don't let your passions govern your life. Live for God. And you have to remember back to the first part of this text. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. That's how all of this is possible. The redemptive blessings of Christ are applied to undeserving sinners through the Holy Spirit, and there is a heart-level change that happens and leads to faith. Look at how the 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it in uh, chapter 10, paragraph 1. This is talking about regeneration or effectual calling. Those whom Christ, Christ, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Christ, Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to do that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Do you see that language of radical change? By his word and his spirit, he enlightens the mind. He gives, he takes the old heart. He gives a new heart. He renews their wills. So if you're wondering this morning how it's possible even to arm yourself, live for God and resist sin, it is only by the sovereign grace of God. Once some, someone undergoes this radical heart-level change, they can't help but live for God. And once someone becomes a follower of Christ, they are called to be set apart or sanctified from this present world. Peter already made this point in, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. One of the results of being set apart from the world is that the world's going to respond. You might have seen this in your own life. We see this in Pastor Eliezer's life. Um, and we see this in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When you give no more time to sin and you seek to set yourself apart from the world, people in the world are going to be surprised. They might even question you and, and ultimately, as this text shows, they, they can malign you. They can mock you. 
And just as Christ was maligned or mocked, those united to him who seek to live for God also will be maligned. In one of his books, R.C. Sproul tells a story about Billy Graham that goes like this. It's, it's wonderful. A well-known, quote, beginning, a well-known professional golfer was playing in a tournament with Gener- President Gerald Ford, pro golfer Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham. After the round was over, one of the other pros on the tour asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? The pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he headed to the practice tee, and his friend followed. And after the golfer had pounded out his fury on a bucket of balls, he asked, was Billy a little hard, out you on, hard on you out there? The pro sighed and said, in embarrassment, no, he didn't even mention religion. And this is what R.C. says. Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about religion, God, or Jesus, yet the pro stomped away, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What had happened? Simply this. The evangelist had so reflected Christ's likeness that his presence brought the same feeling to the pro as experienced by Isaiah. He knew that he was a man lost of unclean lips. In the life of Billy Graham, the lost pro had sensed the presence of our holy God. End quote. And so when we live for God and we give up sin and we conduct ourselves in this way that is distinct from the world, it's not ultimately you that the people hate. It's the one you are united to. By arming yourselves with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh, people catch a glimpse of the holiness and perfection of God. Although Christians are maligned in this present life, we know God will enforce perfect justice. And we see this made clear in verse 5. These people who are going to malign, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so, as we live for God in exile and consequently are persecuted for it, we can take comfort in the fact that God will right all wrongs and he will take vengeance against all evildoers and all will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And it's in light of this judgment, this final judgment, that the gospel was preached. We see this in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And for the sake of clarification, a lot of scholars and myself as well, I liked, uh, it's helpful to read this verse 6 like this. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the way God does. And um, this, this, is, this makes it more clear for modern readers, us, that, that the dead Peter is referring to are those who, from his perspective, have already died. This shouldn't be a, uh, a text used to try to, to point to a Christ's descent into Hades or anything like that. Rather, rather, what likely has happened is that Christians are not only being maligned for their holy living, but pagans are mocking the Christian claim to eternal life. 
they might have said something like, you Christians, you say you have eternal life, but I've seen your kind die. They've seen Stephen die. They've seen Christians die. And so how can you say that you have eternal life? And so what I believe Peter is doing here is he's reassuring his readers that though these Christians have died, they have been made spiritually alive in the gospel. Yes, they have been judged in the flesh. Physically, they've died. But here's the thing the mockers don't understand is the gospel was never meant to save us from physical death. Remember what Peter writes in verse 6. The gospel is preached in light of the final judgment. It's meant to save us from the second death, not the first death. And so although those who die are judged in the flesh the way people are, the gospel was preached that they might live in the spirit the way God does. And this points us to my point four. Since Christ suffered, Christians will receive life. And John Calvin sees a direct connection between this verse and verse 318 where it talked about uh, Christ being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. He says that just as death does not hinder Christ as our defender, we too can take comfort in the fact that death does not bring loss to our salvation. This is the living hope for those who live for God in exile. This is the living hope that empowered Pastor Eliezer Sidhu in Pakistan to stand up against persecutors and recite the Apostles' Creed. Though we suffer in the flesh and will be judged in the flesh, we live for God and we look to that imperishable inheritance that we will have through Christ. If you are living for the lusts of, the lusts of men, it's evident by how you live that your hope is not in God or this imperishable inheritance. Your hope is in the fleeting passions of this world. But no matter who you are, if you are far off from God or you are living for yourself or you're a Christian struggling to live for God, the gospel is your antidote. We see this text begins with the gospel and ends with the gospel. And I want to highlight 2 Corinthians 5.15, which says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And as we come to a close, I just want you to ponder the question again. Think about it. What do you live for? And I want to urge you, as Peter has urged his readers and, and urges you, arm yourselves with a Christ-like mindset towards the flesh. Give no more time to sin. Since Christ suffered, therefore, live for God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for being with us this morning, I ask and pray that you would help us to better understand your word. And we thank you for, for, for Peter and what he has given to us through your spirit. Help us to better know your word. Help us by your spirit to arm ourselves with a Christ-like mindset and help us to resist sin. Help us to see 
that the gospel is our antidote. It's how we can do this. Help us to live for God. Give us hearts that seek to delight in you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.